Hello, everyone. You're listening to ACC Chicago's podcast, It's All Hearsay, a podcast where lawyers give current news, practical tips, and real stories on legal issues relevant to in-house attorneys. My name is Chantal Kazai, and I'm in-house as Director and Senior Counsel of Litigation with Discover, and I'm your host. This episode is brought to you by ACC Chicago and Epstein, Becker & Green, one of our gold sponsors. A quick disclaimer. This podcast is not intended to and does not constitute legal advice. It is for informational purposes only. Listeners are encouraged to contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter discussed in this episode. And visit us at www.acc.com forward slash Chicago to learn more about, like, comment, or subscribe to ACC Chicago, and it's all hearsay. So let's get started. In this episode, we're proud to present Spilling Secrets, a monthly podcast series from Epstein Becker Green Attorneys on the future of non-compete and trade secrets law. In a moment, you'll hear Peter Steinmeier, Kate Rigby, Millie Warner, and Eric Wybus discuss non-compete agreements for attorneys. Thanks, Chantal, for having us and for featuring our Spilling Secrets podcast on ACC Chicago's It's All Hearsay. My name is Pete Steinmeier. I'm the managing shareholder of Epstein, Becker & Green's Chicago office and one of the co-chairs of EBG's Trade Secrets and Non-Competes sub-practice. On each episode of Spilling Secrets, we feature an all-star panel of attorneys talking about real-life problems, developments, and strategies when dealing with trade secrets, non-competes, and other types of restrictive covenants. With me today are Millie Warner, talking to us from the city that never sleeps, New York City. Thanks for joining, Millie. Eric Wybust, joining us from Boston, Massachusetts, a city much like my own that is unlikely to be celebrating a Super Bowl win this year. Thanks, Pete. Go Pats. And last, but certainly not least, also hailing from the former home of Tom Brady, Kate Rigby. Hi, Pete. Today, we will be discussing a topic near and dear to the panel's hearts, restrictive covenants, non-solicits, and confidentiality agreements for in-house and outside lawyers. As a general rule, non-competes for lawyers are forbidden as a matter of public policy, but there are exceptions to this general principle. And of course, there are gray areas especially in the context of in-house lawyers who may wear lawyer and non-lawyer hats, or in some cases, no lawyer hat at all. While different rules may apply to lawyers when it comes to non-competes, that is not the case when it comes to trade secrets. Rather, lawyers are subject to the same laws regarding protection of trade secrets as everyone else, in addition to their ethical duty as lawyers to maintain their clients' secrets. So, we have a lot to discuss today on this topic, so near and dear to each of us. Millie, would you mind starting off the discussion today by describing the general lay of the land with respect to attorneys and non-compete agreements? Sure, absolutely. So, while there's no set of national ethics standards, all states, except for California, And in addition, the District of Columbia based their ethics rules on the American Bar Association model rules of professional conduct. So under these rules, attorneys are generally prohibited from drafting or entering into non-compete agreements that restrict the attorney's ability to work post-employment. 
So under ABA Model Rule 5.6, an attorney cannot participate in offering or making a partnership, shareholders, operating, employment, or any other similar type of agreement that restricts the right of the attorney to practice law after termination of the relationship, except for an agreement concerning benefits upon retirement, or an agreement in which a restriction on the attorney's right to practice is part of the settlement of a client controversy. So this rule is intended to protect an attorney's professional autonomy as well as a client's freedom to select the counsel of their choice. So in essence, an agreement that restricts an attorney's ability to practice law may be viewed as undermining this public policy. This rule has been pretty consistently applied in the context of law firms with the vast majority of cases and ethics opinions holding that non-compete agreements are unenforceable between attorneys. For example, a partnership agreement generally may not include restrictive covenants that prohibit departing partners from practicing law after their withdrawal, even if the restriction is limited in scope. Similarly, a partnership agreement generally may not include a provision that requires partners who leave the firm and engage in a competing law practice to forfeit the financial benefits that are otherwise payable to partners who withdraw and don't compete. So in other words, a prohibition against attorney non-compete provisions is often interpreted to also prohibit agreements and impose financial penalties upon competition. So Kate, so many times in the law, the exception swallows the rule, but in this area, are there any exceptions to these general principles barring attorney non-competes for lawyers in private practice? Yeah, so there are two uh, main limited exceptions uh, to the rules that Millie covered, one of which is the retirement benefits exception. And this allows attorneys to agree to restrictive covenants in exchange for payment of retirement benefits. And so, for example, an employer may condition the receipt of retirement benefits on the attorney if the attorney is ceasing to practice law permanently or otherwise limiting their practice for a certain period of time or geographically or even limiting a certain type of law that they are practicing. As part of that, for an agreement to actually fall within this limited exception, the ABA Standing Committee on Ethics and Professional Responsibility has some other factors that you know need to be reviewed, which is this agreement must affect benefits that are actually available only to an attorney actually intending to retire from the practice of law um, or otherwise winding down their practice. And then it also requires it must be payable only to that attorney actually meeting minimum age requirements or years of service requirements that are actually consistent with the idea of or the concept of retirement. And it also cannot impose a forfeiture of income on that the attorney has actually already earned. There are other some other factors that the ABA formal opinion 06444 looks at, and those include that the presence of benefit calculation formulas are included in this type of agreement, that benefits actually increase as years of service increase within a firm, and that benefits are actually payable during the lifetime of retired partner. So those are some, some requirements for that exception. And then there's also a sale of practice exception in certain states. So states like Alaska, Arkansas, Hawaii, Idaho, New York, and Maine will permit attorney non-compete agreements relating specifically to the sale of practice. So those are a couple different exceptions that, again, are limited and still need to meet certain requirements within each. Thanks, Kate. Eric, a lot of companies will have a standard agreement that they want all of their senior executives, including a general counsel or associate general counsel to sign. And I've been asked to review those and I've had friends ask me about them more than once. 
Are there different rules of the road when it comes to attorney non-competes just because somebody is in-house or do the same principles that Millie and Kate have been talking about apply in the in-house setting? Yes and no is the answer. By its explicit terms, Rule 5.6 doesn't distinguish between outside counsel and in-house counsel. However, it does only relate to the restrictions on the practice of law. And as we all know, oftentimes in-house counsel can wear multiple hats. For instance, a general counsel may also serve in a smaller company as the head of HR. They may have non-legal duties beyond that, such as administrative duties, including supervision of staff. And they may just play a purely managerial role. They may be a senior, like the deputy general counsel, but their role may be solely managing the, the lower level employees, lower level attorneys in the department. Because the rule only applies to the practice of law, companies may, in fact, restrict in-house lawyers from competing with them in other areas, so long as it does not affect their ability to practice law. So, for instance, an in-house lawyer could be asked to sign an agreement that prohibits them from working for any competitor in a certain geographic area to the extent it's permissible under Rule 5.6. And you'll see ethics opinions out of various states saying that that's okay, provided it actually only applies to non-legal functions. So for instance, New Jersey, Connecticut, Nevada, Ohio, Washington, all have ethics opinions saying that provided you're not limiting in-house lawyers from practicing law, a non-compete agreement is in fact permissible. There's a, one exception to that, and there may be others, is Pennsylvania. There was a 2003 ethics opinion that came out that said, essentially, because much of what the non-compete agreement designates as non-legal services, in that case, were indistinguishable from legal services, the restriction on the attorney in their non-legal capacity was not permissible. In other words, there was so much intertwining and entanglement between the legal and non-legal roles that a non-compete that only prohibited competition in non-legal roles would have, in effect, prohibited the person from practicing law. Now, you still have to take into account the fact that there are duties to former clients under Rule 1.9. And Rule 1.9 says that a lawyer who has formerly represented a client in a matter shall not thereafter represent another person in the same or a substantially related matter in which that person's interests are materially adverse to the interests of the former client unless the former client gives informed consent confirmed in writing. And this goes beyond your typical duty of loyalty that an employee has to their employer, which an in-house lawyer would have as well. Duty of loyalty typically extinguishes when the employee leaves the company. In the context of a lawyer, because you've got a former client rule, Rule 1.9, you have additional obligations post-employment. Now, for the in-house lawyer, the client is the company or organization that employed them. However, for purposes of Rule 1.9, an in-house lawyer does not represent the corporate client in all legal matters that arise during the lawyer's employment, which is an important distinction. Consistent with the model rules, there's a formal ABA opinion 99-415 that states that in-house counsel personally represents the company for purposes of the rule only when the lawyer is directly involved in a matter or when the lawyer engages in a type of supervision that results in access to material information concerning a matter. So if an in-house lawyer leaves, goes to a law firm, for instance, they're still going to owe an obligation to their former employer, still going to have to run a conflicts check. If they go to another company in-house, they're still going to have to remember that they owe this obligation to their former employer. And of course, we'll talk about this in a bit, but they still owe confidentiality um, obligations to their former employer, which could 
affect their ability to work for another company, or at least it could limit it. And those, as we'll talk about, are in fact enforceable. In one of our upcoming episodes, I know we're going to be talking about garden leave clauses and garden leave clauses are something that I'm a big believer in, in this area. Kate, in the attorney context, could an employer avoid all of these limitations on attorney non-competes by using a garden leave clause? And by that, of course, I mean, you know, a clause that requires an employee to give advance notice, usually 30, 60 or 90 days before they are permitted to resign and leave their employment. Would, would a garden leave clause avoid some of these restrictions that we've been talking about? So strictly speaking, no. The recently in late 2019, the ABA issued a formal opinion, 489, which talked about obligations related to notice when lawyers leave. And so firms are allowed to require certain notice periods when lawyers leave. So you can require a notice period, but there are limitations on what that means. And the point of it really is to ensure an orderly transition when lawyers leave firms, to allow clients to have an orderly transition, to allow clients to choose which lawyer or lawyers they want to continue representing them. And so you can't use this as a way to get around this general bar of non-competes for lawyers. Rather, it's to be used, again, for this orderly transition. So specifically, the opinion states that lawyers and law firm management have ethical obligations to ensure this orderly transition of client matters when lawyers notify a firm they intend to move to a new firm. And so firms may require some of this noted period for intended departure. But the period of time needs to be minimum and it needs to be under circumstances so that the clients can make decisions about who will represent them, have their files assembled, adjusting staffing at the firm, et cetera. And so these notice requirements can't be so rigid that they restrict or interfere with the client's choice of counsel. Millie, could you have an attorney sign a client non-solicitation clause so long as the clause makes clear that the non-solicit does not limit the ability of the lawyer to provide legal services. In other words, thou shalt not solicit except with respect to legal services. Yeah. So that, that's a good question. And I think the answer is yes, you, you can. The public policy really only speaks to the right of the attorney to practice law and the client's right to choose the legal counsel of their choice. So a non-solicit prohibiting the attorney from soliciting clients for non-legal services really shouldn't impinge on that public policy. And I think as Eric touched on earlier today, that's generally how you know the, the courts and the, the ethics opinions have, have come down on this issue. Kate, how about coworker non-solicitation clauses for lawyers? Are those treated any differently? We won't spend much time on this, but I know that Eric was mentioning, you know, fiduciary duties that lawyers owe to firms, um, much like employees own to companies. And so there are some fiduciary responsibilities about timing of that, but as it relates to a true restriction on soliciting employees, there are some differing opinions, um, both from state courts and also bar associations on that. Several have held them to be unenforceable. And so a few examples of that are um, in New Jersey, where the New Jersey Supreme Court held that an employee non-solicitation provision was unenforceable. And in doing so, the court invalidated the non-solicit in the law firm agreement, reasoning that discouraging a withdrawing partner 
from contacting either the firm's professional staff, paraprofessional staff, for instance, violated this public policy we've been talking about and also found that the non-solicit at issue was overly restricted because those attorneys, right, that may have been solicited were not otherwise informed of this issue and many times want to then go work for that departing partner. And so it otherwise overly restricted their abilities to move firms as well. And one of the things that the court noted was that the effect of this provision is really all the more objectionable when the affected associate, for instance, was not even a party to this non-solicitation agreement to begin with. So that's an example where a court found that to be uh, unenforceable. And also in New York, the Supreme Court of Monroe County found that the provisions in a non-disclosure agreement prevented firms that were in merger talks from soliciting one another. So you know, interesting decisions on that point. But again, there are some differing views depending on the state and jurisdiction that you're in. So we've been talking generally about public policy prohibitions on attorney non-competes. You know, I think we've all had the situation though, where we've had people come to us and say, hey, I've been asked to sign this. I know it's not enforceable. Is it okay if I go ahead and sign it? Or perhaps we've had clients who've wanted to have in-house counsel sign an attorney non-compete, even though they know that it's not going to be enforceable. Is it okay? Does it matter if, if you as a lawyer choose to sign, even though you know it's unenforceable, or, or if you as a company decide to ask your attorneys to sign a non-compete, even though you know it's not going to be enforceable, is that okay? Any problems with that? So technically speaking, as the rule applies to the employee signing the agreement or the attorney signing the agreement, so it's actually an ethical violation to sign a non-compete agreement as an attorney. Now, you're unlikely to be disciplined for that. And it and it's likely to be unenforceable, but technically it's an obligation on an employee or on the attorney to not sign the agreement. In a related but slightly different vein, how about confidentiality agreements for lawyers? We all know that you know attorneys owe their clients an ethical duty to maintain the confidentiality of their legal secrets. Can a lawyer be asked to sign an employer's standard confidentiality agreement similar to what every other employee of a company might be asked to sign? Sure. So as you mentioned, rule 1.6 provides that a lawyer shall not reveal information relating to the representation of a client unless the client gives informed consent, the disclosure is impliedly authorized in order to carry out the representation, or disclosure is permitted under certain examples, for instance, to prevent certain death or substantial bodily harm or the crime fraud exception, stuff like that. That being said, that rule is limited to information related to the representation. And in-house counsel, for instance, may be subject to far more confidential information than just uh, that relates to their direct representation of the company. As we said earlier, for purposes of Rule 1.9, they're only considered to have represented the company for matters that they've worked on. But they may be in meetings where they're gathering information and confidential information about other people's matters. There's all sorts of circumstances in which they could get proprietary information. And so while it might seem unnecessary to require a lawyer to sign a confidentiality agreement, given those ethical obligations, there's certain types of information that would fall out of it. And some companies may want to protect that information, their proprietary information, trade secrets, and so on and so forth, using a separate non-disclosure agreement that they would typically have all their employees sign. About a decade ago, the New York State Bar actually considered the propriety of conditioning an in-house lawyer's employment on the execution of a non-disclosure agreement. 
And the issue was whether this company could require its in-house lawyers to enter into the same confidentiality agreements as all their other employees, as we talked about, with respect to the corporation's highly sensitive research and marketing information. And the confidentiality agreement, like most, extended beyond the termination of employment. So at the heart of the New York State Bar's analysis was whether the proposed confidentiality agreement would violate rules 1.6, which is confidentiality, 1.9, which is obligations to former clients, or rule 5.6, the obviously the prohibition on non-competes with lawyers. The state bar concluded that companies may require in-house counsel to sign confidentiality agreements that might otherwise extend attorney-client confidentiality obligations after the employment period to information that wouldn't otherwise be protected, such as what we talked about, trade secrets and other proprietary information, provided that the agreement explicitly states through a savings clause or otherwise that the confidentiality obligations do not restrict the lawyer's right to practice law following employment and similarly do not expand the scope of the attorney's duties of confidentiality under Rule 1.6. Connecticut has a similar ethical opinion from 2019 that says something similar. If you're essentially just ratifying Rule 1.6 in your confidentiality agreement, then it's permissible. It, it cannot cross into that zone where it could be considered a non-compete or could restrict their ability to practice law. So how about state and federal law regarding protection of trade secrets? Can a lawyer be sued for theft of trade secrets just as any other individual can be? Absolutely. The laws related to trade secrets, whether it's the DTSA or the Defense Trade Secrets Act, or a state version of the Uniform Trade Secrets Act apply equally to lawyers as they do to other employees. You can be sued for violation of those laws. There, of course, in the DTSA, there's a whistleblower carve out. If you're a whistleblower, you can make certain types of disclosures, and that would presumably apply to in-house lawyers as well. But typically, you can be sued under the trade secret laws if you misappropriate. Eric, I'd like to end today with a basic question that my guess is a lot of our non-lawyer listeners are probably wondering, which is why are lawyers exempted from non-competes, but doctors, financial advisors, and all other professions typically are not? That's a great question. And I, I, I do get that from time to time when I'm counseling clients, on this <laughs> issue in particular, when they're the employee who's subject to the non-compete and for whatever reason, they know that rule. The reason that I give, and I think the reason that we all give, is that it's all about the sanctity of the attorney-client relationship. And that is certainly true, but it would also be true for financial advisors, for doctors, and presumably for other relationships that involve trusted advisor type things. The more cynical answer, and probably the, the right answer, is that we get to write the rules. We get to write the laws. We are the judges. We have people litigating these, and it's in our ethical rules, and, and that's how it's how it is. And if financial advisors and doctors want to write it into their own ethical rules, I suppose they could, they could do so as well. But to my knowledge, they have not done so. Okay. Well, thanks, Kate. Eric and Millie, I will look forward to our future conversations about non-compete and trade secret law. And a special thank you to our listeners. If you would like to subscribe to the podcast for free, please go to ebglaw.com forward slash subscribe and click the box for trade secrets and non-competes slash spilling secrets podcast series. Thanks again, everyone, for joining. Until our next episode, this is Pete Steinmeier signing off on behalf of the Spilling Secrets team.
Thanks for listening to ACC Chicago's It's All Hearsay. We hope you enjoyed our discussion on ways to mitigate risks when hiring from a competitor. Brought to you by ACC Chicago and Epstein, Becker & Green, one of our gold sponsors. Be sure to tune in next time as we bring you even more content. As always, if you like what you heard today, visit our website at www.acc.com forward slash Chicago to sign up for our email list as well as check out all the links and resources for It's All Hearsay. Like, comment, or subscribe to our podcast and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at ACC Chicago. That's it for this episode, folks. I'm your host, Chantal Kazai. See you next time.